You're listening to Why Try, the podcast. My guest this episode, Rinst Leisman, is CEO of Columbia Power Technologies, a company dedicated to developing and commercializing wave energy. Basically, their technology takes the movement and the energy of the ocean's waves and converts it into electricity. If you're interested in clean energy and how a company develops these technologies from being fairly expensive to becoming economically viable, I think you'll really like this conversation. Rince Leisman, I'm CEO of Columbia Power Technologies. So Columbia is a wave energy technology developer. We are developing uh, our system for both utility scale, so that's big city type power, but also lower power. So on the utility scale side, you know, think wave farms like wind farms or solar farms, 50, 100, 250 megawatt farms. The low power side, is meant to run sensors and other smaller sort of sub-kilowatt scale equipment in the ocean. How big are the machines for each application? Yeah, the, um, the, the utility scale systems, you, know, you can think of a device that's roughly 25 meters in each direction. Um, it weighs, or its full displacement in the water um, might be you know, well over 600, 600 or 700 tons. So it's a, it's a big piece of equipment. It's a mini, a mini boat, mini ship in the water. Yeah, holy crap. That's way bigger than I was imagining. And then uh, how about the sensors? Are they... Yeah, that's a much smaller piece of equipment. Um, you know, think uh, like table size, so a meter or two. It really depends on what the application is. You know, if you're trying to run um, a, a piece of equipment that only needs, uh, you know, 100 watts, which is uh, for a lot of maritime sensors is actually a lot of power. Um, you know, maybe it's uh, a meter and a half in each direction, so to speak. So not very big, not very heavy. You could deploy it with, uh, with uh, you know, two, gun- two sailors and a small boat. Um, so it's really, that's handleable um, uh, on the fly versus the utility scale systems, which when you tow and you deploy, you really don't really ever want to have to bring them back to port until uh, their service life is up. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, so just to give people kind of the overview, how does wave energy work? Yeah, so the wave energy works. There's a couple different ways for it to actually work. Um, and as the name says, you're trying to capture energy from swells, really. Um, most wave energy developers are trying to develop offshore where it's just a swell rather than a breaking wave. And how you extract that energy really depends on uh, where you've chosen to be in the water column. So if you're on the surface, uh, you're taking uh, energy off of the passing swells. Uh, Some people sort of float midway down um, where they are either taking, uh, they're, they're still extracting energy off the swells, but they're not exposed to the surface, but they also are exposed to less energy. And then others look to be bottom mounted where there's a pressure differential that's created by the passing peaks and troughs of each wave. And so in addition to where you can be in the water column, that's also how far away from shore are you? You can be in deeper water, uh, you know, say 50 meters plus, um, where there is uh, little interaction between the surface wave and the bottom. Um, as the closer you get to shore, 
um, the waves, they literally start to make sand. Um, so you're losing some energy off the bottom. You know, it's a little bit easier to get to in, in some instances, and some people want to be, you know, reasonably close. Um, then it gets to be more difficult, you know, when you're starting to fight breaking waves as you get closer to shore. So the, our system works. Um, we're a floating offshore deep water system. The devices will be arrayed in uh, a matrix in a farm, similar to how you would see uh, a wind farm. Uh, and as each wave goes by, uh, the floats on our system um, move and roll with the waves. And there's a central body that also moves really in opposition to the floats. And so what we're trying to do is exaggerate the relative movement between those to turn a generator. Uh, what stage in development is your product and your company overall? And we are in the midst of transitioning from the R&D phase to the commercialization phase. So right now we've got uh, a test, a land-based test of a full-scale direct drive generator that's of our own design. Um, that is happening at the National Wind Technology Center uh, in Colorado. Uh, our generator is very similar to what you would see in a wind turbine. Um, in fact, it's probably worthy of a, uh, a little bit of a discussion later on. We think we've got some technology that may help the wind industry. Um, but that, that generator is very similar to what you would see in a wind turbine. So we're doing a land-based test um, of a, that is a six and a half meter diameter uh, generator. So that's a big piece of equipment. Uh, and then from there, we move to a full-scale demonstration at the U.S. Navy's test facility off of Oahu called the Wave Energy Test Site. So there's a Marine Corps base there um, on the other side of the island from uh, Pearl Harbor. Um, it's a beautiful place, and it's got great waves, and the Navy has set up a, a grid-connected test facility there. So as we, uh, as we move from Hawaii uh, on to the next step, um, whether that is off the coast of Oregon where a new test center is being built or in Europe, um, that's really as we begin to start our commercialization phase. So we're, we're in the midst of a transition right now, um, which is an interesting topic all by itself, moving from a R&D shop towards trying to focus on commercialization. Um, but we've been working on the system for about eight years now and uh, look forward to commercialization before 2020. Yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, in terms of making that transition, what, what are some of the things that you're spending most of your time and effort on currently? Yes, yeah, so part of, the, part of the difficulty for us, um, in, in, and I'll back up a second. So there's a, a couple of different ways to attack the problem uh, from an R&D path. Um, if you think about a, a matrix where the x-axis is, can I build something? And then the y-axis is, does somebody want to buy it? And obviously, you want to be in the upper right. Um, I can build it, and somebody wants to buy it. Uh, but the path to get there is, you know, there's some significant choices to make. Um, our, our predecessors in wave energy, entitled to some degree, um, really tried to run out the x-axis. So it's a race to scale, first mover advantage, whatever the, the term you want to use. And the problem with that is that you try to make that system that you've uh, built that large-scale system, as you try to make it economic and make it so that somebody wants to buy it, you've literally sort of designed yourself into a corner. Um, we chose a different path and more of a 45-degree angle trying to balance economics with practicality and survivability of the system and scale. And that path, uh, you know, it's a little bit slower because um, you're doing sort of this big flat 
uh, set of spirals from the lower left to the upper right where, you know, you figure something out, you go test it, see what's wrong, you back up and you do it again or repeat that cycle. And we've done that at smaller scale um, to try to remove the major flaws and get the big issues out of the system. And that approach necessitates really extensive explorations and optimization um, cycles. And so that's a, that is, um, that's the right way to do it. But as you move towards commercialization, you really just can't get into those open-ended examinations anymore. You need to make some decisions and, and push forward. And so that's a, that's a transition that we're going through now. It, it's a hard one um, and because uh, it's requiring a different set of skills and disciplines, really, um, as we push forward. Um, so that's a, that's a transition that we're in, it's, uh, and we're working our way through it. But it's, you know, it's Nothing's ever easy, and, and that's definitely not an easy one. Interesting. So in terms of that uh, y-axis you were describing, how do you engage with uh, customers at an early stage in development? The hard thing for any startup company is to get the attention of a bigger company, right? Um, you know, it's, it's a little different for us than most because we have thresholds where we know or feel comfortable that revenue would be available to us. If you look at offshore wind in Europe as an example, this is a very expensive technology when it started off 15 years ago. Um, there was a lot of foresight between European utilities and developers and governmental policy um, that were all aligned towards trying to push that industry forward. So you're, you know, you're talking about a technology that was probably, I don't know, 50, 60 cents a kilowatt hour. And um, they stuck with it and got to sub 20 cents of, you know, maybe five, six years ago. And it was a billion dollar business at that point. And then recently, because of what they've been able to build uh, volume and going on the learning curve and building a supply chain, um, you know, they're now building, they're now making bids for five, six euro cents per kilowatt hour. So, you know, I, I, I bring that up because I think our belief is that if you can start to hit some of these cost thresholds, you'll find the business somewhere. There are, you know, in the U.S., part of the hard, the hard part for commercialization in the U.S. is that we're very cost-driven, low risk, low cost. Europe and others take a different view of the world where they're willing to take on higher risk. They're willing to develop markets in order to diversify their energy mix. So it's you you you've got to have utility engagement and you've got to uh, understand i think what is they or any project developer needs in a system so i think we stay reasonably close to independent project developers and utilities to to understand the qualities that they need um and at the same time it's you know i think re readily apparent of what cost thresholds that you've got to get to in order to get uh gear in the water so just for reference, how does the cost per kilowatt hour, like wave energy, compare with uh, some of the other like forms of energy out there? Like where is it in that uh, development? Yeah, so it's still too expensive for any project developer to consider it without uh, federal support um, in one way or another. Um, we see, uh, you know, in Europe that um, there is a combination of grants, uh, some feed-in tariffs, infrastructure build out. Um, there's a lot of different mechanisms that uh, come into play in order to uh, to try to 
equalize that cost or make the cost, uh, make a utility or a buyer indifferent. Um, so there's, you know, for us, uh, Europe is probably where you need to commercialize, but you obviously have to come back or want to come back to the U.S. market. Um, but it's a, uh, it, it's just not competitive yet. We're not there. Um, nobody's there. Title is getting there. Um, Tidal Energy is uh, uh, less of a technical challenge in Wave, so they're starting to commercialize first. And you see in Europe and elsewhere in the world the first commercial projects going in the water now. Okay. Yeah, what's the difference between Wave technology and Tidal technology? Yeah, so um, most Tidal technologies tend to be a spinning blade taking advantage of moving water, whether it's tide or current like the Gulf Stream, um, maybe it is uh, run of river, um, but tidal and wave or marine hydrokinetics um, is, a, is a whole group. But wave energy is, is mainly focused on taking advantage of the energy in, in, in ocean waves. Um, but tidal, tidal has about, I think, one-seventh uh, the availability worldwide. Um, you know, you need, you know, Scotland is a great place for that. Uh, larger rivers are really good for uh, current technologies. Um, you have people that are working to take advantage of ocean current like the Gulf Stream. Um, uh, so there's a, a wide variety of approaches. You know, it's, it's part of building out the, the, the mix here. But uh, the tidal guys who are uh, taking advantage of, uh, of regular ocean tides uh, in Scotland and France are the ones that are putting in the first commercial uh, project. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it's, it's more like there's the, like a net movement of water as opposed to like uh, vertical oscillations, like, like the kind of like little wave up and down. I think that's exactly right. So wave particles move in a, in a rotary fashion. Um, so you see folks trying to take advantage of that rotary motion, whereas uh, tidal or current is taking advantage of a flow. That makes sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah, this is something that we kind of touched on, and I'd be curious to kind of hear what your thoughts are on it going forward for the next, uh, you know, 10 years of your company. Uh, but it seems like generally clean energy space is one that's like fairly exposed to political risk. So how, how do you navigate that? Well, uh, it's not easy. Uh, you know, for the for the first few years, uh, I was working with Columbia. Uh, there was really no political risk at all in the equation. You saw while they were moving at different um, trajectories, uh, you saw the U.S. and Europe both moving forward. And then between you know the Brexit vote and, and administration change, you know that those trajectories were upset. I I think that. You know, it ends up being okay because as, you know, the current administration really focuses on early stage technologies, um, you know, WAVE is pre-commercial. So we, we, we fit into that mode very well. And I think in, in Europe, um, you know, there's obviously they need to decide what they want to do. The UK needs to decide what it wants to do and, and things will settle. So, um, you know, I, I think it probably appears noisier um, than it is uh, for the established commercial technologies that, you know, are uh, uh, eager to either keep on the long term or get rid of because it creates too many problems, tax credits um, in order to, to help equalize the price. I think it's a, it's a much more volatile situation. Um, but 
it, it's uh, it's never easy, and it is uh, it, it does tend to get noisy. But for the most part, it it, it tends to work out because I think that most everyone recognizes uh, you know the the power that's uh, the energy that's out there uh, in the ocean. And then if we can harness that, uh, that it would be, you know, a, a wonderful addition to the energy mix. Um, but, you know, it takes time. So uh, it, it's worked out so far. But, you know, it certainly from the outside looking in can, can seem to be a bit messy. It seems like, I mean, definitely like compared to like a coal plant, like it's very like environmentally friendly. Are there any like problems associated with wave energy? Like, like I guess for like hydroelectric, you know, the salmon runs like the salmon has like a harder time with that because like getting up the ladder is like an extra hurdle to being able to like spawn and all of that stuff. Is there any evidence of like early complicate any early evidence of interfering with the ecosystem in that way? Well, uh, of course not. Wave wave energy is perfect. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, know, well, the, I'm just curious what like what the critique would be. Yeah. So the the you know, it's there's a couple things um, that you know we think about and that that others uh, also um, think about and you know one is marine spatial planning so uh, while the ocean is a relatively unfettered place um, there are pre-existing uses and uh, pre-existing um, zones in the ocean whether it's for navigation or or fisheries or marine preserves um, you know, the state of Oregon went so far as to start a zoning process to try to get ahead of this issue. And, you know, there's a, that's a, that was a very contentious process because one, you've got change. Um, and two, it makes people nervous. Um, you know, you, you obviously don't want to put a wave farm on top of somebody's uh, trans-Pacific communications cable or somebody else's power cable. So you need to worry about planning. Um, are there environmental effects? You know, we'll have to see, um, you know, what those are, if any. Um, you know, people, you worry about a lot of gear in the water column. So if you think about uh, a whale trying to migrate through a wave farm where there are mooring lines and devices, does that look like a fence or does that just look like something that I need to figure out how to swim through? So we'll, we'll figure these things out as we go. Um, you know, another which I, I think is probably gets more play than it needs to is, EMF and the, the effect of uh, electricity in the cable. You know, there are a lot of power cables in the water. There have been a lot of studies done that I think sort of render this one as less of a potential effect. But, you know, that makes people nervous. What does it do to sharks or to salmon who are trying to migrate to those electrical fields uh, disturb what they're trying to do. So there are, you know, there are a number of things that we need to figure out, um, but we also need to make choices. Um, are those potential effects? We would say that they are minimal, if, if anything at all. Um, do those potential effects, uh, are they a lot less worrisome than some of the other things that are going on in the ocean? Um, you know, I, I'd, I'd say there are. So we've got to make trade-offs as we move forward and, but you also have to have a social license to move for you know to move forward. Uh, you can't have local communities with uh, um, pitchforks and bonfires out because that's just not going to work at the end of the day. But you know, I, I, I think that most people again take a cautiously optimistic view towards some of these issues of marine spatial planning and environmental regulation or or permitting. Um, 
but you know we've got to work through it. So as the industry commercializes, then we'll learn more and more. And I think that's an important requirement is that we can't study everything before we do the initial deployment. We have to be willing to study and to use adaptive management as we go along. Otherwise, the industry will never get anywhere. And I think that's the approach that Europe has certainly taken. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, uh, I think we feel comfortable that, um, you know, the regulators in the U.S. are uh, going to be careful, um, but they're also, you know, not going to try to stand in the way of anything. Yeah. It, you know, and part of that is also risk, right? You know, what's the, what's the risk, whether, what's the potential environmental impact for putting a device in Hawaii? Well, we need to, to walk through those risks with the regulators and the permitting authorities, because um, it's important to get them out in the open and understand what they are and quantify and see if any changes need to be made. But, you know, what's the potential impact at the end of the day? Um, and I think, so that's an important concept. Um, you know, and it's, it's, that applies in our business or what we're trying to do in more ways than just environmental, right? Perfection is, is our enemy. If we wait and try to create the perfect device at small scale, we'll never, ever get anywhere. We're, we'll run out of money or run out of time or our investors will run out of patience, you know, so, so uh, we have to be very careful to be practical, um, yet move in as optimal direction as we possibly can in, in a lot of different areas. And that's, you know, I think that for us is, is hard, right? As you're bringing a new energy resource to bear, there are a lot of moving parts. Uh, political risk, as you talked about, market risk, market development risk, technical risk, financial risk. It's, it's really trying to balance all of those and keep everything moving um, uh, in the right direction that I think is, is, is really the hard part for us. Yeah, it's all super interesting to think about. Um, definitely like a lot of moving parts. Do you want to kind of pivot a little bit and talk about how you got involved with this company? Sure. Um, there was really no grand scheme there. Um, I happened to be on a conference panel with a non-executive founder. And at that point, I was working for a seed and early stage venture fund that I had helped to, to found. And um, part of our model was to do um, outsourced executive work or outsourced consulting um, for portfolio companies and non-portfolio co portfolio companies. So he asked if I would come in and take a look. Columbia had made great strides at that point and was a company full of engineers and hadn't done really any business development or any external fundraising. And so what started, you know, a couple hours a week consulting and due diligence and business development uh, exploration sort of turned into a day a week. And, you know, next thing I knew, I was sort of full time on it and starting to raise money for the company's Series A. And part of what I found, Nicholas, was that for all the business plans I'd ever seen and never taken a look at, it, it, it tends to be a, a technology looking for a market or a technology looking to try to, to make a market. And with wave energy, with ocean energy in general, whether it's tidal or, or wave, um, I really saw something that was phenomenal to me. You had, especially in Europe at that point, you had – you know, very accommodative national policy, very supportive. You had utilities that were engaged, you know, very deep-pocketed beta customers that were looking to get involved. You had a social license in Europe. You know, it's not whether we're going to do it, it's how much are we going to do and to what extent. And so what you had was literally a, you know, a 
billion, multi-billion dollar market that was sitting and waiting on a technology to show up that could satisfy the needs and necessities of being out in the ocean and making electricity for 20 years. So, so that whole situation was just flipped on its head where the market was waiting on, a, on an answer. And you know, I'd really never seen that. I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs have the vision to be able to understand that. But for me, that one really hit me sort of square, square in the head. Um, and that was an opportunity that I um, really wanted to try to take advantage of. You don't get too many chances in life to, to it sounds kind of hokey, but to change the world by bringing a new resource to bear for energy production. Um, and, uh, you know, so this was, uh, this was a shot that I wanted to take. There's no grand scheme behind it. It, it just, it happened. Um, but, you know, I'm glad it did. Absolutely. I don't think that sounds hokey at all. Uh, do you want to talk well, about like the fundraising stage or the fundraising process? Uh, so how, how does that work when you have this fairly early stage technology that might take, um, what, what was your initial estimate for how long it would take to uh, commercialize <laughs> it successfully, like, to, to turn it into like a real business beyond the technology? Yeah. So uh, probably like any entrepreneur, um, there, there's, there's probably some fooling of yourself to how long you think it'll really take versus what it does. You know, I, I, I think we probably thought that we would be getting, uh, we would be deeper into the commercialization phase um, for where we stand now. Um, you know, but it's a, it's a, it's a difficult problem. You know, the, the fundraising for us is you say, you know, it, it is in a sense an early stage technology. So it requires both public and private support. Um, there's just no way uh, you know, from our standpoint, other technologies um, at our stage, it really requires, in, in it, that have a gestation period like we do, it really requires a combination of private and public um, funding. So private investors just aren't willing to, to bear the risk um, and the, the timelines um, by themselves. It's in the national interest. Um, to help create new energy technologies, especially ones that can be cost-effective and that can provide such a material amount of power at the end of the day. So, you know, like uh, medical device technologies or new pharma or defense technologies, you know, in the U.S. we do a really good job of helping to uh, to build up and develop um, new systems, new technologies, and, and this is really no different. So there's a transition that takes place eventually as you move your way towards uh, predominantly private. Um, you know, for us, one of the tricks is to be able to produce a, a bankable, warrantable system. We're a little bit away from that, um, so it'll take some federal support to in order to get a lot of systems into the water. Um, but it's a, you know, for us, it's it's critical to have both um, because without the private funding. Um, you know, we can't access public and, and, and vice versa. So I think that investors tend to really value also the due diligence that happens as you win competitive grants um, from the federal government. Um, they value that. They, uh, it helps them uh, get comfort level with the technology, and it helps them to kind of sort through, you know, who seems to be making progress and, and, and who doesn't. If we have a little bit of time, I was curious to ask you about uh, what you were doing at your previous enterprise. Like, uh, was it Tall Oaks Capital Partners? Yes. What made you feel like that was an area where you could really add value? <laughs> well, you seem like a young guy, right? Like, I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, no, well, you know, added value is, uh, um, is in the eye of the beholder, I guess. I think our view, uh, we had, uh, had been doing some angel investing, um, and you know, we're in the middle, we're in central Virginia, um, not, you know, a couple hours away from, from DC. And when, back when we started the fund, yeah, there was, if you were in DC, there were, you had a ton of attention, um, lots of, uh, of capital, but sort of in, in the rest of Virginia, ROVA, as we referred to it, you know, there wasn't a, a ton of, um, it was just harder to, to, to get the eye of one of the bigger city venture firms. And so our, our original theory was that, um, you know, there's probably an incredible amount of intellectual capital. You have some great academic institutions um, outside of Northern Virginia, um, and so our our theory, our view was that you know we could help those technologies, we could help uh, those entrepreneurs um, who weren't in the big city uh, to develop their technologies. And the way it ended up was that you know, we were able to spread our geography, and that probably made more sense. And we focused on healthcare uh, and IT, which are obviously strong sectors in the mid-Atlantic um, U.S. Uh, on the East Coast. So it was uh, that was a great run. How old were you when you started that? I was. How old was I? I was probably in my uh, early 30s when I started that. So I wasn't too young. Well, like, what were the experiences that you'd had before that that got got you feeling like that was something interesting that you wanted to do? Yes. Um, so I had had a pretty or a reasonable wide variety. I grew up in South Carolina, worked in shipping, warehousing, logistics, had a lot of different responsibilities very early on, ran a couple divisions for a firm there, um, uh, had been had gone back to business school as part of my tenure there. So, uh, you know, I, I, I guess my feeling was is that I had been um, exposed to a lot of different things at an early age, um, really enjoyed um, the, uh, the technology, as- the new technology aspect, um, being in a business that wasn't necessarily on the cutting edge or bleeding edge of technical innovation um, that always sort of ended up in my lap. And, you know, I really enjoyed that. So for me, having had some managerial experience and had my hands in a lot of different things, it just was sort of a natural, really that, that was a, was a natural um, growth area for, for me personally. And so I was really excited. We did that for, uh, for 10 years. I loved it and uh, had a lot of fun, but you know, our, the shift over here to Columbia has been, been uh, equally great. So, and for me here, um, that wide variety of uh, experience and the exposure to all those different aspects of running a company that, you know, make me, I think, uh, able to, to do what I'm doing. Okay, cool. Uh, just a few final questions here. Uh, so what does success look like to you personally? That's a, that's a great question. So um, success for me personally, probably, you know, built first around family and helping them, uh, my kids to be successful um, and, you know, good, well-rounded people. You know, I think the the next rung on the ladder is obviously to make Columbia success and fulfill, you know, really our mission to bring wave energy, um, you know, as a commercializable technology. And then, you know, for me, it's I, I gain my personal satisfaction from seeing those two things really unfold. Um, 
you know, I like to get back as much as possible, um, whether it's co- coaching youth sports or participating on boards. But um, so, you know, I, I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of that also. Um, but, you know, I think it really is about trying to, to make those around me successful. I sort of worry less about me personally being successful rather than trying to help others. Yeah, that's, I think that's what leadership is right there. Uh, so what, what traits do you think make someone a great entrepreneur? I know you kind of came into it uh, like a little bit sideways, but it still seems like you're doing so much work with innovation. You'd have, have some good thoughts on this. Yeah, this is, this is not my idea, but I've adopted it. Um, I, I've read somewhere that you know the best entrepreneurs are those that look at the constraints around them and figure out how to expand those boundaries. So what's the money that I have? What are the people that I have um, or that I, the resources that I have access to? What's the market um, that's developing around me and what are my constraints on revenue and not? And you know, I think it's the ability to sense what's there and figure out how to make more of it. That ability to leverage, I think, is, is really what makes a difference. If you could go back you know, 10 or 15 years and give yourself an extra hour a day uh, how would you how would you spend that hour? Hmm. Yeah, you know, um, so I end up traveling a lot, and uh, it, and that takes me away from home quite a bit. So I'd probably try to spend that hour in and make myself, uh, you know, or more available at home, um, uh, or you know, more available for you know other you know non-business pursuits. I think I'm, I'm working hard enough during the day, during the week, um, to uh, to feel like I'm, I'm I'm doing all that I can there. And you know, sure, I could say that I'd like to spend that hour working more, um, and it would probably be better if I did. But I, you know, I think it'd be more about taking care of myself and, and those around me more than anything else. So I've been asking this question for a couple of months now, and so far, basically, no one has said that I would want to work more. It's always <laughs> been about um, striking more of a balance, having um, better relationships, more time in nature was a common one, um, j- just if uh, that's interesting to you. And then uh, just to yeah. kind of wrap up, do you have any uh, good book recommendations or other resources that uh, you think are really interesting or valuable? Yeah, so I, I tend to let to like to read about, um, you know, people and leaders and so forth. And uh, a fascinating book that I've read recently is The Wise Men, which is about really the, the, the group of guys that sort of guided uh, foreign policy for the U.S. through World War I and to the Cold War. And it's a, to me, it's a, it's a fascinating study of what started off as such a unbelievably wonderful foresighted trajectory that just turned so so far south and so sour as we got into the Cold War and to into Vietnam and you know I think it's um, beyond the tragedy of that I, I, I think it's such a good as I was reading the book it was such a great lesson that you know you've got to adapt and you have to understand what's changing around you in order to make sure that you know you're not stuck in thinking that's whether it's a, a week old or a month old or a decade old or however old it may be, um, you know, it's that ability to sort of continually refresh and, and take stock of where you are. And, you know, was I thinking the wrong way about this? Do I need to change what I'm, you know, how I'm doing? I need to listen to those around me because what worked before 
isn't always going to work as we go forward. So I, 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 th- I think that's a great book, especially if you like history. Um, it's fascinating ta- learning about the personalities and, you know, just kind of what went wrong at the end of the day. So it's a awesome. Good Who's the author of that? It's Walter Isaacson. So anything by him is good, but yeah, that's, that's his book. Yeah, it sounds like a great book. I haven't heard of it, so um, good recommendation. Thank you. Anyway, yeah, thanks, thanks so much for taking the time, Rince. Yeah, I, I appreciate your time, Nicholas. It's been fun. Thanks again, Rinsed. My conversation with Rinsed got me really excited about the future of our society, as well as the future of clean energy. It's a recurring theme, but I'll say it again. I love talking with these people because they remind me of all the awesome stuff that's going on in our world. Judging by the news, you might be inclined to focus on all the stuff that's going wrong with the world, but really, you have to consider everything that's going right, too. Entrepreneurs and business owners, to me, represent a powerful force for improvement and betterment of our world, and I feel lucky to get to talk with so many of them. And I hope you're enjoying it, too. Music for this podcast is by Cambrian Explosion, who once spent three years exploring the ocean steps in a magical submarine. You can find their music on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and cepdx.bandcamp.com. There's a link to that in the show notes. If you want to hear from more people like Rinsed, check out and make sure you are subscribed to Why Try in your podcast app. You can find more episodes of Why Try, as well as a few of the things I learned about entrepreneurship from doing this podcast at nicholaspeel.com, where you'll also find book recommendations and cooking recipes. There's something for everyone, so check it out. Again, that's nicholaspeel.com. There are links to everything I mentioned, as well as Rinsed's book recommendations in the show notes. Thanks for listening.